Welcome to TalkCast, and in this episode, I'm returning to Stephen Pinker's book, Rationality. Eventually, this is going to be a long introduction, exploring the topics in the title of today's chapter. I said in the last episode on this book, and this will be underlined today, that this is an excellent book if you've ever wanted to go to university but couldn't afford it, or didn't have time, or it was too far away, or maybe you just weren't interested in the lofty world of academia when you were younger, or maybe you did go to university but never took a course that at any point mentioned something like critical thinking. It's curious that many university courses these days do mention critical thinking because it's part of that duo of educational buzzwords, critical and creative thinking. Universities market themselves in part as teaching people how to think better, both critically and creatively. So even if a student doesn't take a course titled critical and creative thinking, at least some of their courses will say that these are the skills they will develop over the course of the semester, somehow. Even schools these days tout their credentials as hubs of innovation, creativity and critical thinking. It wasn't always this way. Schools and universities were rather more often narrowly focused on particular disciplines and they aimed to be vocational somewhat. But gradually, over the last couple of decades at least, they have claimed to be places where students learn what they call transferable skills. Of course, things like reading and writing and numeracy have always been that. They're not intended to be useful in just one subject area, but rather can be transferred so that the content of any subject discipline can be more readily learned. Elementary or primary schools used to claim a monopoly of sorts with much of what they were teaching. They could always fall back on and saying, well, this stuff, you know, the basics, the fundamentals of reading and writing and arithmetic is actually useful no matter who you are or what you will end up doing doing. So you need to learn the content that is taught in an elementary school. So you may as well attend one. It's universally useful. High schools, on the other hand, have often had a more difficult case to make. There's rather too many adults who come out and say they've never needed either trigonometry or algebra or Shakespeare for the rest of their lives. Indeed, they'll claim that English class ruined good books and their science teachers turned them off science. So what was the point? This idea that some or even much of what is taught in high school never gets used by a typical person leads to these debates that just go on and on without end about the content of a school curriculum. A study gets released that says kids today are more overweight than ever, so governments show they are addressing that issue by increasing the amount of physical education students must take, and so they can learn about the evils of soft drink in nutrition class. If an international ranking puts your nation well below the top of the league's tables in science, well, a government might make an additional year of it compulsory for all students. On the left... Calls can be made for the rewriting of the history curriculum to highlight the evils of colonialism, invasion and the resulting extant racism. And on the right, for teaching the virtues of democracy and the horrors of totalitarianism, often through a canon of classics. So governments decide it's only reasonable that students are taught all of these perspectives and so learn to think critically about them. Lucky those students. This all-perspectives approach comes into religious instruction as well. Why shouldn't they learn about every religion, so it's argued? And even in science, 
teach them the controversy view, teach them the Big Bang, but also many of the prominent creation stories. And if that's okay, then yeah, sure, teach them climate change. In fact, teach them climate change every single year where possible through the lens of each and every single subject they take. But now also teach them what the skeptics say. And then on top of that, teach them the response to the skeptics. And if by the end you haven't filled up the curriculum entirely, never mind, because we still have to recognise the strong case being made that the fundamentals from schooling as it was 30 years ago are also a crucial basis for everything else. So we need to keep all of that content as well. All of this has the effect of never actually reducing the quantity of content that a typical student is expected to learn. The quantity of content only ever increases. I mention this because two things happen simultaneously in schools, one causing the other. There is an expectation that certain highly specialised issues are covered in schools. For example, like the soft drinks thing, soft drinks are evil, or how fossil fuels are destroying the planet. Indeed, anyone who has ever opined in public about what is taught in schools almost always has their special area of expertise that it is crucial for students to understand. Bankers and economists will say that finance needs to be learned, and they even call it financial literacy. Police say stranger danger, online safety and driving skills are needed. Lawyers say rights and what to do if arrested need to be known. And for some reason now, everyone encounters robotics very early on, and all of this tends to leave modern education open to the charge of becoming far too niche. So what is done in response is an attempt to craft content that is deliberately broad and claim to be useful in any subject. Enter critical and creative thinking. Hence, children in many schools now will learn things that sound as if they belong on an application for a job in the corporate world, like personal and social skills or intercultural understanding. Among these so-called broad-based skills, in Australia we call them general capabilities, you also get critical and creative thinking skills. There is a remarkably unified global educational culture, by the way. Countries can differ markedly in any other respect, but in terms of education systems, even if the language of instruction is completely different and there is very little common history, what is being taught in school is becoming uniform across the planet. Australia, France, Argentina, South Korea, when one educational jurisdiction makes some change, the others take notice and often follow the fad if it seems like the new wave to catch. No one wants to be left behind. No one ever wants to be left behind. The fear of being left behind motivates almost everything in education and breeds this constant content creep that happens in a connected world of educators. So if you went to school even five years ago, much less 15 or 50, then the idea you would encounter content specifically about how to think critically and creatively, it might all sound rather foreign. But it is becoming the norm now, along with all those other things I mentioned. And the reason for this is because education is trend-driven. Content comes into vogue, but unlike with cod pieces and capes, very little goes out of fashion entirely. At best, it's like the periodicity of miniskirt popularity. Some things seem to be a quaint curiosity of the past, only to reappear once more as if being a true innovation. 
So in education, almost all of the content taught 50 years ago just continues to exist alongside the new trendier stuff. So a school will still teach the periodic table and kids today will learn by rote rather often the first 10, 20 or 30 or more elements. Some will say it's not compulsory to do these days, but many teachers will still encourage and reward a practice like that. But they will also learn by heart the various names of indigenous tribes around the world and what their predominant creation myths are. So because of this trend, where the content gets increasingly more specialised in one direction, it leaves that open as a criticism, becoming too specialised, which is why the general skills are introduced into the curriculum, which supposedly underpin thinking across every subject. In the case of critical thinking, which is part of the topic of today's episode, it's been there in the university somewhat longer and is likely the reason why it eventually caught on in schools in recent years. Now, personally, I noticed this, or you might be thinking I seem to have a bee in my bonnet about this, for a few reasons. The first is because, well, I was always interested in that very topic, critical thinking. I always liked being able to sift the sense from the nonsense and being able to point to what criteria was useful in doing exactly that. Why was astrology not really making predictions? Were those flashing lights in the sky evidence of alien life? How can we separate the pseudoscience from the science and so on? I liked looking for the deeper reasons. What united the nonsense rather than having to deal with things more piecemeal and on a case-by-case basis, it seemed it could be very useful, in other words efficient, to learn the deepest criteria for being able to quickly adjudicate whether the subject in question was getting us closer to the truth or whether it was just pretending to. Hint, and this is something I'll return to in this episode, what we're actually looking for is whether and to what extent some discipline is focused on detecting and correcting errors. That is how knowledge growth happens. That's how knowledge quality improves and progress is made. If a subject is just about pushing particular narratives about the future or particular theories that resemble clickbait, where none of it really is ever arrived at with a methodology anyone explains well, then some deception is going on. Actual methods of knowledge creation involve that error detection I keep on going on about and that takes checking claims against what we know and what we know about how we know and when it comes to scientific matters at times against reality itself. Absent any of this, errors won't be found in the first place, let alone stand any chance of being corrected. So, interested in such criteria for sense versus nonsense when I was at university, I looked for subjects that mentioned terms like critical thinking in their promotional material, and I can tell you that 20 years ago or so, it was indeed rather rare. Another reason is that later when I found myself involved in teaching, I noticed that what I thought I'd eventually learned myself was useful when it came to critical thinking never appeared in the standard curriculum. And then as critical and creative thinking gradually became a part of standard educational jargon that that teachers began using, it was to label a bunch of things I thought of as anything but critical and creative thinking. Indeed, it might simply be that actual critical and creative thinking was just not able to be properly learned within the traditional school system precisely because the traditional school system is not intended to be a place where students object to or improve upon the curriculum itself. So, personally, I have a little bit of history with this. Now, of course, there's also this bizarre thing that 
really is just an issue recently in the United States, as far as I can tell, which is confusingly called critical theory or critical race theory. I'm basically passing over that in silence because, well, there's nothing critical about it. It shares the word critical, but nothing else. It seems to be anti-critical in the sense that it's a bunch of dogmas purporting to be absolute truths intended for use as indoctrination in schools, which, of course, Rather much of schooling does turn out to be, but this critical race theory stuff is a return to something like Victorian era religious instruction, or perhaps something more like what occurs in socialist and communist regimes. It's not critical in the broader sense of the word, and really has nothing to do with critical thinking, so we can just mention it only to now ignore it. Instead, what this chapter before us is called is Logic and Critical Thinking from Pinker's book, and it does provide an overview of what those terms are all about from a university lecturer's perspective. Recall, as I said in the last episode about this, that the entire book, Rationality, arose out of Stephen Pinker's teaching of a course by the same name at Harvard University in 2020. A quick Google search will get you to videos of the lectures Professor Pinker delivered on all of this stuff. So it's freely available, which means you can learn all of that as well, or even better than if you actually attended the university itself. For one thing, attending the university itself means learning the content under constraints that won't apply if you're learning it whenever and wherever you want. I'm belaboring all this just to say that again, The book is an excellent overview of exactly what universities regard these topics as being about and what the fundamentals of them entail. And that could be very useful to many people. And I should say that what Harvard apparently has offered in 2020, I recognize at least some of exactly the same kinds of things that I learned 20 years ago at universities in Australia. So this kind of thing about logic and critical thinking is pretty consistent across (laughs) countries and across space and across time. So at the risk of further self-indulgence, some more of a personal diversion for this episode first. When I first entered university, I enrolled in a physics and astronomy course. Being brand new to university and actually knowing no one among my friends or family who'd been to university, that includes extended family, I knew little about it and so basically treated it like school. So the university enrolled me in particular subjects and I never knew that one had the option of doing anything else. So in the first semester, I was enrolled in this subject called Computer Applications of Experimental Science, the title of which gave very little clue about the content, which if I'd known the content prior to being enrolled into it, I probably wouldn't have remained in the course. But as it was, I kind of accidentally fell into this course because in my mind, it was compulsory. Long story short, though, it was about logic and learning to program in machine code. Machine code is one step up from programming in binary, the language of a computer itself. The machine code normally sits between the binary that the computer understands and whatever the higher level programming language is that the programmer normally uses to instruct the computer. So that was part of this course. The logic part of the course was about logic gates, the way hardware did what it did at the level of electronic circuitry in a computer. So for example, a logic gate could be an AND gate. In an AND gate, two inputs come in and one input goes out. The only way the AND gate outputs a one or an on signal, call it what you want, is if both of the inputs receive a one or an on signal. If only one of them does at a time, or neither of them, then the AND gate is turned off. Another gate is the OR gate. So here we require at least one of the inputs to be on, and then the output will be on also. Hence, OR. Is one or the other input on? Yes, okay, send a binary one signal. A curious thing about all of this is that any logical gate, there are more logic gates than what I've just mentioned, 
can be represented by some combination of what are called NAND gates or not AND gates. The NAND gate is universal. So I'd taken a subject in high school that was basically computer science, and they touched on some of this, but now it became clearer to me that this logic thing went way deeper than I thought initially, and I, so I began reading about it more widely. And of course, this was happening at the same time I was realising that the reason I was interested in astronomy in the first place was because I was interested in fundamental things like what are the biggest structures in the universe, what are the deepest laws that applied to the evolution of the universe as a whole, and of course, how we can possibly know all of this, and what the limits are to what we know. So of course this leads to mathematics and philosophy, both which have a common shared basis, as I began to understand, in logic. So I decided to learn more about that, logic, formally, and went searching for where I could learn more about it at university. It seemed it was available for study both, interestingly enough, in philosophy courses, where there were explicit subjects in higher years about logic, and also some mathematics courses, but again, only in the higher years. So I looked into what I needed to take first to satisfy the prerequisites, always one of the most frustrating parts of taking any course at university, satisfying the prerequisites. And all of this led me into discovering that my science degree allowed me to swap out some of these subjects that had rolled me into automatically for others. Anyways, I ended up enrolling in my first formal philosophy subject in my second semester, and that was called Reasoning, Values and Persons. It was the reasoning bit that grabbed me, and that was the first subject I took with an emphasis on what analytical philosophy regarded reasoning to be. That allowed me to take a subject just called logic a semester later, and I found that to be little different from a kind of algebra, and if you're into that sort of thing, it can be kind of fun because it's basically a game or a puzzle. You learn the rules, literally they're called rules of inference, and you are given a set of premises and told to show how the conclusion follows. And this subject went through three simple kinds of logic, beginning with what is known as propositional logic or sentential logic. It's baby logic, the foundation and the easiest. And if you want an insight into what logic is, the most important in rationality in this chapter, Stephen Pinker gives an overview of propositional logic. The next kind is called predicate logic, which can be defined in lots of different ways, but my preferred description of it is that it is basically propositional logic with the ability to use operators for all and their exist, and these are known as quantifiers. And my university went on to the next most complicated sort, which is called relational predicate logic, which introduces more variables still. Now, completing that basic subject of logic allowed me in my second year to take on something called philosophical logic. And that went into how to prove the soundness and completeness of logical systems, among other things. The soundness of a system is about how something like the system of propositional logic only proved true conclusions from true premises. And completeness was that all theorems in the system could actually be proved. And finally, by third year, I was able to take a subject offered by the mathematics department called logic and computation, which went into proofs for incompleteness of arithmetic alongside things like programming Turing machines. Now, what has all of that to do with anything? Well, the message I took away from it all was that personally, I found all of that interesting because it aligned with what I'd been reading about in The Fabric of Reality, for example, when it came to Gödel and the limitations on what can be known and what seemed to crop up in lots of popular science I'd been reading. But, and this is a very big but, I never felt that any of it did anything whatsoever to improve or even change my day-to-day -day thinking. 
I never thought that being able to competently use rules of inference to prove a conclusion followed from premises made me a better critical thinker. It was, all of it, essentially algebra. No one ever actually took symbolic formal logic and then applied it to an actual argument in the real world that I could see to show if and how it was invalid. They never needed to. Invalid arguments were shown to be invalid arguments by valid arguments in English, in natural language. So courses on logic to me were like courses I took in physics. It wasn't like either gifted one with a special ability to pick up a newspaper or turn on a documentary and begin noticing more errors than otherwise, unless the article or show was specifically about logic or physics. In other words, the skill didn't really seem transferable in the way that it's marketed today. But still, the marketing material would say, for any course on logic, that it would teach you to think logically. And of course, that's a logical claim, right? Learn logic, learn how to be logical. But here's a thing to be noticed about university students especially. If you elect to enroll in a class like Formal Logic, you're going to find your fellow classmates are already like you in that crucial way. The kind of person who thinks learning logic will be useful somehow. They're already focused on thinking in a particular way. They come into class with a sort of sceptical, analytical disposition, which my guess is remains 95% unaffected by their formal learning and logic. After all, what is it that universities and these days schools think formal training in logic and critical thinking will accomplish? What they think is that it will provide what is necessary for someone to then figure out on their own by using logic and critical thinking what is true in science or history or the media or anywhere else. They will spot the errors made in those theories being presented and so arrive at the truth rather than being misled. Seems reasonable, right? Wrong. Well, the thing is that explanations in any domain do not represent the abstract logical proofs that logicians are competent in creating. They simply aren't deductions from premises, or if they are, logic cannot possibly show you what might be wrong with the premises. Logic is utterly silent on the truth of the premises, or the conclusions, or anything else. So really, formal logic is an exceedingly narrow tool when used to find errors in an explanation. At best, it can serve to show that a particular step might be invalid, but even then, in almost all cases, no formal logic is ever consulted. People can already see what the problem is. If someone says the supposed trend of global warming cannot possibly be real because this week has been unseasonably cold, we just explain that trends in nature are rarely perfectly linear. Expertise in logic or abstract thinking more broadly is not only no guarantee of infallibility, I doubt it helps much at all as a skill that really is transferable, as they call it. Namely, if you are an expert in logic, then this knowledge cannot necessarily be transferred to your analysis of ethics or history or science. Logic rarely settles disputes in the real world. People argue about the truth of particular assumptions or about the supposed consequences of some particular policy, neither of which is a matter of logic. I mean, consider the Unabomber. He turned out to be Ted Kaczynski, famously an adept mathematician. Apparently, he understood quite a bit about the formal process of reaching valid conclusions. Or consider Fields Medal winner Edward Witten's Twitter feed. If that's anything to go by, then again, logic and mathematics alone won't prevent an unhealthy obsession with Israel. And even Albert Einstein made the case for a one-world government – Something I'd guess would be a fast track to global immiseration. All of which is to say there is not a class of people especially immune to error. There's not a class of people especially logical who form some sort of class of elite thinkers who are going to agree with all the other elite thinkers out there. 
something else is going on in human minds, well beyond logic and a desire for consistency. People are not calculating conclusions, but generating guesses. They're not doing anything like what other computers, hitherto, are doing, trying to perform a task that it has been programmed to. People instead are making up tasks as they go along in order to solve some problem they've just encountered. There is no escaping computational universality. The brain is a computer. But it is quite a leap from that basic fact of physics to the mind running on that computer is a single fixed program that can ultimately be reduced to a particular pattern of logic gates. It's interesting that if it were that, shouldn't we be better at logic? The mind is more like that thing which can have problems. One moment it has this problem it's working on and the next it's something else. And each problem it has, it attempts to find the best solution in that problem situation. Whether that solution is strictly contradicted by something from another solution it relies upon elsewhere might not be noticed. Or if it's noticed, partitioned away to either be contemplated later or completely forgotten. A mind deals with contradictions in a way that would cause any other program running on any other computer to grind to a halt and deliver an error message. Effectively, the mind creates new explanations without regard about how they fit together for the moment or if they contradict. Almost everyone knows the feeling. I want to be as healthy as possible. I answer yes to the question, do I want to be as healthy as possible? But simultaneously, I answer yes to, do I want to sit down with another cookie or packet of chips? Yes, I want to do what it takes to be as healthy as possible. And yes, I want to do the opposite. A person makes sense of this and keeps on making progress, solving problems, switching from one objective or interest to another, having motivation to do one thing and then another. We've never programmed a computer to be motivated to do anything at all. We don't know how. So existing computer programs just do things that we program them to. They don't have problems. We have problems. A computer treats a contradiction in its code as a reason for halting. We see it as a problem, but we don't come to a complete stop. As we've talked about many times here before, even our deepest theories of physics logically contradict one another. And although it's an important problem, it's not a deep emergency. It doesn't cause us to stop everything else until we've solved that problem. Quantum theory is still used to solve problems and make progress, and so is general relativity, even if they make logically incompatible claims about the deepest nature of reality. Logical consistency is not required for rationality and progress. It is entirely rational to use those theories, even if their conjunction is a contradiction, strictly illogical. One might say, oh, but they don't contradict because one makes claims only about this domain and the other makes claims about some other different domain. No, that's quite wrong. They're both universal. They both claim to be universal, and that's the point. They don't limit their own domains of applicability. So it's absolutely a problem that these incompatible claims are made, and physicists work towards trying to resolve that contradiction, towards trying to unite general relativity and quantum theory in some way. But the fact they are logically incompatible in a deep way does not prevent progress from being made either in quantum theory or or relativity, as I said. Their unification is just one path to progress for one particular problem. So if progress and problem solving can happen and does happen in spite of logical contradictions, why is logic held in such a lofty place academically anyway? Well, because it works. A claim that something is illogical is indeed a criticism. It labels a problem we should want to resolve. 
like in the case of assuming that in one mood the deeper structures of the universe vary continuously, and then in others that they vary discreetly, that's a problem. But it's not a barrier to progress. And that progress will come if we simply take it as a working assumption that, say, reality is fundamentally discreet, and then see what solutions that leads to, using logic. Or in other situations where we have failed to resolve the issue, it's not because logic itself is a barrier or faulty, but because we haven't been imaginative enough yet to find a creative solution. Putting aside that logic works as a method of criticism to illuminate where the problems are and thus where progress might be made, we have a tradition in philosophy stretching all the way back to Aristotle who formalised early versions of it. Aristotle's logic was focused on syllogisms. These syllogisms were all about the terms all and some and none, or equivalently every and there exists, which are, if you recall, the basic operators in predicate logic. But syllogisms consist of three lines normally. And in the Aristotelian version, there is a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion which involve existential claims. And again, that means all or none or some, those words. The first of the valid forms that's normally talked about in the Aristotelian scheme is the form called AAA, triple A, which goes, all men are mortal, all Greeks are men, therefore all Greeks are mortal. You might have heard a version of this before. It usually crops up. I think Pinker might even point it out at some point too in his book, which is the kind of version of that syllogism which goes all men are mortal socrates is a man therefore socrates is mortal but that is actually not a syllogism in the traditional aristotelian sense because of that second line the line that says socrates is a man is not of the form it's not of an existential form in other words it should be written as there exists some man Whatever the case, Aristotle made a big deal about logic. So, like so much of what the ancient Athenians and Greeks did, it exists there in philosophy today still. Another reason is that mathematics is viewed as a pristine discipline in academia whose techniques and conclusions reach a level of certainty not possible elsewhere. And logic is seen as the most fundamental branch of mathematics, underpinning everything else. Now, this idea that logic underpins mathematics is true. And the two things, formal symbolic logic and mathematics, aren't different. Formal symbolic logic is a branch of mathematics. But the idea it is the deepest area of mathematics is not exactly correct. It was once thought this had to be the case, that no matter what area of mathematics, ultimately, it could be broken down to its basic logical constituents. If this could be done for trigonometry and geometry and algebra and calculus and number theory, then it was thought that there could be a list of axioms underpinning all of mathematics from which every theorem ever needed in mathematics could be logically derived, presumably by a computer programmed with those axioms and the rules of inference. This is known formally in mathematics as Hilbert's program after the mathematician David Hilbert, who early last century, proposed work be done to find that ultimate foundation of mathematics. But it was Kurt Gödel who showed that Hilbert's program could never actually be achieved. There cannot be a single set of axioms forming the basis of all of mathematics from which everything that is true or valid in some system would have a proof. Instead, Gödel showed that, forget anything more complicated like all of mathematics, just the few axioms underpinning simple arithmetic are such that, even in simple arithmetic, there can be valid claims made for which no one would ever be able to prove one way or the other, whether it's true or false. This is known as incompleteness. 
This is to be contrasted with more simple systems like propositional logic, which is a simpler system than simple arithmetic, and predicate logic. Propositional logic and predicate logic, you can write down a string of symbols, which, if it is a valid string of symbols, there will be a proof for or against it, given the axioms within that system. In other words, propositional and predicate logic are complete. So without going into those details any further, we see that logic is looked to in some way, not merely as a tool of rationality, but something like the ultimate arbiter, or at times it has been at least. I think many more people today understand that formal logic is sometimes useful as a tool and that being illogical is actually always a problem. But the fact we can live with contradictions does not mean there is a problem with logic. It just means that problems are possible and exist and we haven't yet been able to resolve them and there will always be problems so we should expect to find contradictions and eventually because problems are soluble to also resolve those contradictions but in doing so to find more problems. Okay so this is possibly one of the longest introductions I've ever done to an episode of TalkCast but remember with this book that I'm going through Rationality by Pinker I'm not reading it as extensively as I am with the other books that I go through. I'm just basically giving an overview of what happens to be in the chapter, reading a very small amount and then reflecting on that small amount that I do read. Without further ado, let's get into some reading today from Rationality by Pinker. So, Chapter 3, Logic and Critical Thinking by Stephen Pinker. And he writes, quote, In the previous chapter, we asked why humans seem to be driven by what Mr. Spock called foolish emotions. In this one, we'll look at the irritating illogic. The chapter is about logic, not in the loose sense of rationality itself, but in the technical sense of inferring true statements, conclusions, from other true statements, premises. From the statements, all women are mortal and Xanthippe is a woman, for example, we can deduce Xanthippe is mortal. Uh, and, end quote, just my note on that. Keep in mind here that even this way of presenting logic can be misleading. A valid logical proof will lead to conclusions that are as true as the premises were. Of course, we cannot establish that the premises are true in the first place. Using logic, or indeed using any process available to us, fallible humans, so it remains all assumed the woven web of guesses, as we like to say around here. As Pinker goes on to say in the very next paragraph, quote, deductive logic is a potent tool, despite the fact that it can only draw out conclusions that are already contained in the premises. Unlike inductive logic, the topic of chapter five, which guides us in generalizing from evidence, pause there, my reflection, and fans will know exactly what I'm going to say here. Inductive logic is not the thing that allows you to generalize from evidence despite what everyone thinks. And this will be an important thing when we get there. But it's par for the course. Outside the work of Popper and David Deutsch, you'll almost never find a treatment of reasoning that just assumes induction or inductive reasoning is what it takes to prove the truth or near truth, or whatever you like, of your premises. It's taken for granted that there is such a process called induction, but there isn't. What we have instead are conjectures, guesses checked against reality, and, and which serve as the only known starting points. 
Also, there is confusion outside most of the epistemology I've read anyway, outside of Popper, that in some ultimate sense, deduction really is reason. It's the gold standard. It's the idea that at root, claims about the world have to be arrived at deductively for them to be reliable or else ultimately they cannot be logical in some way. Hence, to say anything true, you have to be certain that your premises are true. So you have to be a dogmatist of a kind. In other words, endorse the idea of self-evident truth, at least as starting points. The alternative is conjectural explanations, conjectural explanatory knowledge that solves problems rather than certain truth that allows you to deduce certainly true conclusions. So in reading books like this one, like Rationality Here Before Us by Pinker, where it's clear the author doesn't really grapple with or ignores or misunderstands, rejects, or possibly just doesn't see the importance in the overall approach to knowledge that Popper gifts us with, one has to keep in mind what's going on psychologically there. What is the motivation in their writing about knowledge or with logic and rationality? The whole motivation is to find a firm foundation because then and only then can you begin to create knowledge. It's identical to Descartes' project. He began with, I think I am, as the necessary truth. And from there, he was able to infer everything else logically, deduce everything else logically. And really... This is what even writers today, centuries later, are still trying to do if they have rejected, ignored, or misunderstood Popper. And so that's really what we've got here. We've got the a search, a search for a firm foundation, and having found the firm foundation or trying to get the firm foundation, then you go on to deduce everything else. Let's keep going. Pinker writes, Since people agree on many propositions... All women are mortal, the, the square of eight is 64, rocks fall down and not up, murder is wrong. The goal of arriving at new, less obvious propositions is one we can all embrace. A tool with such power allows us to discover new truths about the world from the comfort of our armchairs and to resolve disputes about the many things people don't agree on. The philosopher Gottfried William Leibniz, 1646 to 1716, fantasized that logic could bring about an epistemic utopia. Quote from Leibniz, The only way to rectify our reasonings is to make them as tangible as those of the mathematicians, so that we can find our error at a glance. And when there are disputes among persons, we can simply say, let us calculate without further ado to see who is right. End quote back to Pinker. You may have noticed that three centuries later, we are still not resolving disputes by saying, let us calculate. This chapter will explain why, end quote. And what I'll say about that is, I don't think it fully does, because it's not embracing the idea of conjectural knowledge and applying rationality to conjectural knowledge, but instead, it's a foundationalist picture of how we arrive at knowledge about reality. It never really figures out why you can't just calculate your way to knowledge, as Leibniz hoped. And so, for anyone who rejects the idea, or doesn't really understand the idea, of knowledge being conjectural, if you don't take that to heart, then it will, of course, be a great mystery that in terms of that epistemology, why logic doesn't resolve all of our conflicts, you will likely say, well, logic is perfect, but people are not. Well, what Pinker goes on to say is, quote, One reason 
is that logic can be really hard, even for logicians, and it's easy to misapply the rules, leading to formal fallacies. Another is that people often don't even try to play by the rules and commit informal fallacies. The goal of exposing these fallacies and coaxing people into renouncing them is called critical thinking. End quote. So there in Pinker, what Pinker's saying there is that it's people that are the problem. They don't apply logic perfectly and they make mistakes. Now, yes, that's perfectly fine. That's true. But it's not the reason why we cannot resolve all conflicts using logic. Even if everyone were perfectly logical all the time or near perfect, it wouldn't help. The issue is not a lack of proficiency with logic. Reasoning just cannot work that way because there cannot be a single set of axioms that can serve as a starting point from which we can derive knowledge. After all, we want to know what those starting points are in the first place and if they can be improved and how. Moreover, those starting points, those axioms that serve as what we're using to derive our conclusions, ostensibly to create our knowledge on this view, they will be incomplete because of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, that will apply, and no-go theorems, like Arrow's no-go theorem, will imply that not all of our premises will be able to be satisfied simultaneously, even if they're all reasonable. And thus, we must always fall back into requiring creativity, new explanations, and new modes of explanation. Knowledge creation simply is not purely deductive, and that is why logic cannot be the be-all and end-all. As Pinker goes on to say himself, quote, But a major reason we don't just calculate without further ado is that logic, like other normative modes of rationality, is a tool that is suitable for seeking certain goals with certain kinds of knowledge, and it is unhelpful with others, end quote. Okay, so what Pinker says there, I find a little confusing. This section began with a promise to explain why logic cannot resolve all disputes. But here it's saying it's unhelpful with certain kinds of knowledge. I find this misleading because I think logic is, as Pinker calls it there, a normative mode of rationality, or rather something that forms a part of rationality. It's a tool, and the tool can be helpful no matter what. But sometimes, rather often, what we have is a case of not having literally logically derived the knowledge under discussion, but we have, once again, conjectured it and tested it and found it solves the problem. But as to testing whether it has been derived using logical rules of inference validly, well, again, by definition, it often hasn't when it's been conjectured. Now, this is the case no matter what the kind of knowledge is. I'd like to know what these kinds of knowledge are that Pinker has in mind. We don't really learn. So presumably there are places where logic applies and there's places where logic doesn't on this view. Now, I reject that. I think that logic can always be applied anywhere. It's just sometimes it won't be particularly informative which may be what Pinker is trying to say here, but I don't see the reason for dividing up knowledge into different categories, some of which will obey the laws of logic and some of which won't. I don't think that's useful. I think 
logic can apply across the board. It's just that sometimes it won't reveal where the error is or reveal a path towards progress. And other times it will. Okay, so the next section is called Formal Logic and Formal Fallacies. And I'm going to read sections of this and leave other sections out. But let's begin. Pinker begins by saying, quote, Logic is called formal because it deals not with the contents of statements, but with their forms, the way they are assembled out of subjects, predicates, and logical words like and, or, not, all, some, if, and then. Often we apply logic to statements whose content we care about, such as the President of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. We deduce that for a president to be removed, he must not only be impeached, but also convicted, and that he need not be convicted of both treason and bribery. One is enough. But the laws of logic are general purpose. They apply whether the content is topical, obscure, or even nonsensical. It was this point and not mere whimsy that led Lewis Carroll to create the syllogisms in his 1896 Symbolic Logic textbook, many of which are still used in logic courses today. For example, from the premises, a lame puppy would not say thank you if you offered to lend it a skipping rope, and you offered to lend the lame puppy a skipping rope, one may deduce the puppy did not say thank you, end quote. And On that point there, yes, that's quite right. These syllogisms illustrate that all we need to know here is that logic or deduction alone can't create knowledge because where did the axioms come from? They didn't come from a logical deduction by definition. And just a side point here, and this might seem unfair, but in the passage I just read, just notice what comes to mind first for the author When an example of something we supposedly all care about, he said, here's something we all care about, and that something was political. It's politics. It was something about the US president. Now, it might not seem a big thing, except in the context of this whole book, supposedly about rationality, which is a term of epistemology, is independent of the content that it's being applied to. But university academics especially are absolutely fixated on Politics, it would seem. They talk politics in classes, even when the class should be about something else. And in this case, about anything else, because you can apply this rationality thing to anything else. But the example that's often employed is an example from politics. Now, that particular case here about conditions under which the United States president will be impeached or not is entirely innocuous, except as we'll come to see the other examples that crop up throughout the book, which are very parochial and very timely. They're about 2016 through to 2020. They're about Trump and Clinton and various people that have cropped up over the last half decade or so. So he's very fixated on trying to talk about the recent history of politics and in the United States, which for someone who's interested in logic and rationality is rather distracting because there's so much other fodder out there which could be used from deeper history or indeed science and other subjects. But if you're sort of obsessed in some way with US politics, then that's what's front of mind. And in particular, it is the thing that, as Pinker says here, let me just read the sentence again, often we apply logic to statements whose content we care about, such as blah, 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 the US president. (laughs) For many of us, we don't care 
Or at least we care much less than what we care about, you know, certain other things that are more interesting in the world, like the truths of physics and chemistry and geology and astronomy and so on and so forth. But anyway, let's persevere. Pinker goes on to say, quote, Systems of logic are formalised as rules that allow one to deduce new statements from old statements by replacing some strings of symbols with others. The most elementary is called propositional calculus. Calculus is Latin for pebble, and the term reminds us that logic consists of manipulating symbols mechanically without pondering their content. Simple sentences are reduced to variables, like P and Q, which are assigned a truth value, true or false. Complex statements can be formed out of simple ones with the logical connectors, and or not, and if then, end quote. So, um... Yes, this is one of those cases where in this subject of formal logic, we have some annoyingly ambiguous terminology. There's no standard way to talk about those P's and Q's of formal logic beyond saying, well, they're variables. Usually when on their own, just as a P or a Q in logic, we call it a proposition. And hence, that's where you get this term propositional logic from for the most basic of all kinds of logic. When you put them together... For example, you put P and Q together, logically, P and Q as a statement. This is called a statement quite often, or sometimes even a sentence. It's confusing because P and Q being variables represent something else or can stand in for something else. Like it might represent the claim, Socrates is a man. So let P equal that claim, Socrates is a man. But if it's the case that something like P is a statement, and a particular instantiation of it, Socrates is a man, is also a statement, well, then we've got something confusing going on. And we need to have a way of distinguishing between P and Q and the things they represent or the things that could be substituted for them in logic. I prefer, I mean, I personally prefer the convention where P or Q are called propositions, and then any string of them remains a proposition as well. Propositions are things that have truth value. So if P and Q have a truth value, then any string of P's and Q's linked together with the logical operators and or not if then and so on also are called propositions. But what they represent, like Socrates is a man, is not a proposition. It's not like that. It cannot be a priori necessarily true or false in any sense. It must contain ambiguity, ambiguity of a kind that P does not. For one thing, Socrates is long dead, so the word, it, the word is in Socrates is a man is rather misleading. Was might get us closer to the truth. Socrates was a man, but anyone not living in the proverbial cave in the last few years would know that assuming one's gender or sex is itself a contestable area. So saying Socrates was a man is not exactly a necessary truth. But even if you reject that, even if you reject this new age of gender ambiguity, then you might still think that to be a man is something that is an ideal that even grown adult males don't always reach the standard of. Maybe some think Socrates wasn't in fact a man by some standard because he capitulated too easily to the authorities and preferred death to life. Whatever the case, Socrates is a man, that claim about the world is not like P, which is not a claim about anything. And so therefore that leads in 
the worldview of David Deutsch, for example, to say in a particular tweet in 2018, quote from David, only propositions have truth values, but we can't utter a proposition. We can only utter statements, which are, at best, approximations to propositions, end quote. And this is an important idea to take on board, no matter what words we use for this stuff. The fact is, logic deals with P's and Q's, variables that have truth values, a priori, by definition, of necessity, however you want to say this. But what they represent is not like this. What they represent are claims we can only fallibly know, and so are, at best, approximately true. Let's continue. Pinker goes on to say, quote, You don't even have to know what the connector words mean in English. Their meaning consists only of rules that tell you whether a complex statement is true, depending upon whether the simple statements inside it are true. Those rules are stipulated in truth tables. End quote. Okay, so I'm not going to read Pinker's explanation of this. I'll just go through it and we'll have a look at these truth tables and how they work. This is something that anyone who's ever encountered logic before can probably skip over because it might be a bit tedious. So there are these logical operators such as AND, for example. So here's the truth table for AND. We've got a column for P and a column for Q. So there's four different combinations of truth values that P and Q could take. So P could be true, Q could be true, or P could be true, Q could be false, P could be false, Q could be true, and P could be false, and Q could be false. And then if you have the conjunction of those, the logical conjunction, which is where you've got P and Q, well, P and Q are true, just in the case where P is true, and separately, Q is true. So the combination of them together is true. But if you're asking, uh, is P true and is Q true in the second row? Well, no, it's not. So there's no other situation in this truth table where both P and Q are true. So that seems trivial. And in fact, they do seem to be trivial until you get to if P then Q. So we can see here the truth table for P or Q go through the same thing. And this is called the inclusive or. So in the case where you've got either P is true or Q is true, the situation where you've got both of them being true at the same time, that's true. If it's one or the other, that's also true. It's only in the case where P, both P and Q are false, that P or Q is false. Now, is, there is such a logical operator as the exclusive or, often written as um, X or. And in the case of X or, it's exactly the same as the truth table for P or Q, but P, X or Q rules out, regards as false, the situation where both P and Q are true. So there's a difference between exclusive or and inclusive or. You know, you get invited to a function and they say uh, during the dinner, you can have the chicken or the fish. The or there is exclusive or, and they don't expect you to say both. It doesn't imply that you can have both. On the other hand, they may say to you, if you go to a fun park, you need to be over 18 to go on the Ferris wheel or above the height of 1.6 metres. Now, if you are both over 18 and above 1.6 metres tall, then that's okay. That's an inclusive or. You can satisfy both of those criteria. So there is a difference in English language between the use of the inclusive and the exclusive or, as there is in logic. So I'm skipping a number of pages, and I'm going to the part where we're going to explain why it is that the if-then logic table has the form that it does. And I'm going to use Pinker's explanation of this because I think it's quite good. And an explanation is needed because people who encounter the if-then table for the first time 
wonder why it has the structure that it does. So I'm going to pick it up where Pinker is using a fictional dialogue between a flirting boy and girl. So uh, a couple here are, are engaged in a little bit of banter. And the banter goes like this. Oliver says, what makes you so smart? And Jenny says, I wouldn't go for coffee with you. Oliver says, I wouldn't ask you. And Jenny says, that's what makes you stupid. <laughs> and Pinker goes on to say, let's fill out Jenny's answer as... If you ask me to have coffee, I would say no. Based on what we have been told, is the statement true? It is a conditional, a statement formed with an if, the antecedent, and a then, the consequent. What is its truth table? Recall from the Wasson selection test in chapter 1 that the only way for if P then Q to be false is if P is true while Q is false. Here's the table. So we've got our P's, we've got our Q's, and we've got if P then Q. So the first line is, if P is true and Q is true, then if P then Q is true. The second line is the only one that's false. If P is true but Q is false, then the conditional becomes false. But the final two rows are the ones that often cause people to pause because in this situation we have the case where P, the antecedent is false, and regardless of what the value of Q is, the conditional, if P then Q, is always true. And what Pinker says about this is, quote, if we take the students at their word, Oliver would not ask her. In other words, P is false, which in turn means that Jenny's if-then statement is true, lines three and four in the third column. The truth table implies that her actual RSVP is irrelevant. As long as Oliver never asks, she's telling the truth. Now, as the flirtatious scene closer suggests, Oliver eventually does ask her, P switches from false to true, and she does accept. Q is false. This means that her conditional, if P then Q, was false, as playful banter often is. The logical surprise we have just encountered, that as long as the antecedent of a conditional is false, the entire conditional is true, as long as Oliver never asks, she is telling the truth, exposes a way in which a conditional in logic differs from a statement with an if and a then in ordinary conversation. Generally, we use a conditional to refer to a warranted prediction based on a testable causal law, like, if you drink coffee, you will stay awake. We aren't satisfied to judge the conditional as true just because it was never tested, like, if you drink turnip juice, you will stay awake, which would be logically true if you never drank turnip juice. We want there to be grounds for believing that in the counterfactual situations in which P is true, you do drink turnip juice, not Q, you fall asleep, would not happen. When the antecedent of a conditional is known to be false or necessarily false, we're tempted to say that the conditional was moot or irrelevant or speculative or even meaningless, not that it is true. Okay, so I'm, I'm skipping over a bit, but Pinker again goes into uh, using another political example, this time about uh, vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin from um, 2008. So uh, it's another political example. I'm going to pick it up where uh, Pinker just says, quote, the difference between if in everyday English and if in logic is just one example of how the mnemonic symbols we use for connectors in formal logic are not synonymous with the ways they are used in conversation where, like all words, they have multiple meanings that are disambiguated in context, end quote. So, yes, this is the difference between formal logic, which can ignore the meanings of 
everything, just about, and natural language like English, which is there to communicate meanings. Personally, I like to read something like if P then Q as if you have a P, then you get a Q. Or in other words, in cases where you don't have a P, the rule is still assumed to work. It's still assumed to be true. Hence why it is that in those situations where P is false, where we have no P to begin with, it does not matter. The rule happens. The rule still applies. The rule is saying that if you have a P, then you will get a Q which is what the first line is saying explicitly. In a case where you have a P, but then you don't get a Q, well, it's a situation where the rule has failed. So the rule itself must be false. But those last two rows, they don't refute this. They are, in a sense, vacuously true. So that's the way I try to understand the if P, then Q, the if then table. Now, truth tables can actually get exceedingly complicated. If you're interested in electronics, for example, the programming of computers at the most fundamental level, at the level of binary encoding of information, then logic gates, combinations of logic gates, their outcomes can be represented by truth tables. But this is an extremely cumbersome way of trying to get at whether or not a particular argument is valid or not, or what the outcome of a particular argument is going to be. And so, therefore, there's a shorthand, the shorthand being so-called rules of inference. And rules of inference allow one to prove a conclusion follows given premises. These rules of inference, they kind of turn logic into a bit of a game of algebra where you're putting together the rules of inference in order to figure out whether or not you can reach the conclusion given the premises. As Pinker goes on to say about logic, quote, he says, its power comes from rules of valid inference, little algorithms that allow you to leap from true premises to a true conclusion. The most famous is called affirming the antecedent or modus ponens. The premises are written above the line, the conclusions below. For example, if P, then Q, P, therefore Q. And Pinker gives an example. If someone is a woman, then she is mortal. Xanthippe is a woman, therefore Xanthippe is mortal. Another valid rule of inference is called denying the consequent, the law of contraposition or modus tollens, which goes, if P, then Q, not Q, therefore not P. And just my reflection on that, this is the logical rule explaining refutation. So especially in science, when your theory P predicts that Q will happen, and then in the experiment Q doesn't happen, you have a problem. In the case where you had some other theory, call it T, that did predict Q wouldn't happen, then you've shown P is false, logically. Of course, logically, it could always be the case that your assumption was false and, in fact, the experiment was flawed. But that's not actually a problem for science. Science works anyway. And people who do experiments generally are very careful about trying to detect, correct, and eliminate lots of errors from their experimental procedure. Okay, so we've got a couple of rules of inference to begin with. Everyone begins with modus ponens and modus tollens, as Pinker indeed has done. And if you look up rules of inference on Wikipedia, you can find long lists of them. I'm going to skip forward to where Pinker starts talking about some more interesting ones, uh, and I'll pick it up where he says, quote, More interesting still is the principle of explosion, also known as from contradiction, anything follows. P. 
not P, therefore Q. Suppose you believe P, Hextable is in England. Suppose you also believe not P, Hextable is not in England. By disjunctive addition, you can go from P to P or Q. Hextable is in England or unicorns exist. Then by the disjunctive syllogism, you can go from P or Q and not P to Q. Okay, so just pausing there. So so this disjunctive addition, all this is saying, this rule, this curious rule, which says, well, if you kind of know something is true, if you know that P is true, then it has to be the case that P or Q is true, necessarily. <laughs> you already know that P is Q, therefore the disjunction, so it's called, P or Q, also has to be true. So let's keep going with uh, Pinker's little proof here. Then by the disjunctive syllogism, you can go from P or Q and not P to Q. Hextable is not in England, therefore unicorns exist. Congratulations, you just logically proved that unicorns exist. People often misquote Ralph Waldo Emerson as saying, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. In fact, he wrote about a foolish consistency which he advised great souls to transcend. But either way, the put down is dubious. If your belief system contains a contradiction, you can believe anything. Morgan Besser once said of a philosopher he didn't care for, there's a guy who was both P and not P and then drew out all the consequences. Okay, just um, pausing there, just my reflection on this. So let's just focus on that claim by Pinker where he said, if your belief system contains a contradiction, you can believe anything. Okay, so there is the innocent way in which this is quite reasonable. Okay, if you can identify a contradiction, then yes, you can go on and believe any old nonsense that you like. You shouldn't gloss over contradictions in a so-called belief system and thinking they are of no consequence. They are. However, we are going to encounter contradictions throughout our belief systems, throughout what we regard as being good explanations routinely. And in your personal life, you may have these, but as I've already been at pains to say, in physics, we have these two grand theories of fundamental reality, quantum physics and general relativity, which are at odds, which make contradictory statements. But does that mean we can believe anything? Does that mean that just because we have this system of science which contains contradictions when considered as a whole that this is a reason for believing anything no well there's a few reasons for saying no to that number one we shouldn't be believing our scientific theories in the first place so that's one thing they're not really a belief system but even taking them as just our best explanations of the world i wonder what pinker would say about should our best explanations of the world be able to contain contradictions. And if they do, does that permit us to create any old explanation we like? Does that allow us to then go on to say, therefore, unicorns exist? If quantum theory is saying the fundamental nature of reality is discrete, and if general relativity is saying the fundamental nature of reality is continuous, and these fundamentally contradict one another, does that then allow us to go on and say, well, because we endorse a contradiction, therefore, unicorns exist? No, it doesn't. What we have to say in that situation is that they're making incompatible claims and we don't know which one really holds as a ultimately true description or explanation of reality. All we say is that they are our best explanations, neither of which we should truly believe. And as David Deutsch says, it would be better 
if we considered the human mind as something like a thing which has problems, a thing which has a problem situation, and therefore we can go out into the world and find solutions for individual problem situations, sometimes those solutions will contradict one another. But that does not mean we can therefore conclude on the basis of the fact that we are entities which contain contradictions and entities that can, that can live with contradictions that therefore anything goes. This is a limitation of logic when applied to the rationality of the human mind, something I'm not sure that Pinker really grapples with. That Pinker really grapples with the notion that we, all of us, contain within us contradictions and that's fine. It'll always be the case because we cannot have an unproblematic, perfectly consistent state, nor is that desirable. Let's keep going. I'm skipping over a little bit more of what Pinker has said and I'll go to where he says, quote, a valid argument correctly applies rules of inference to the premises. It only tells us that if the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. It makes no commitment as to whether the premises are true and thus says nothing about the truth of the conclusion. This may be contrasted with a sound argument, one that applies the rules correctly to true premises and thus yields a true conclusion. And just pausing there, in the Popperian worldview, we could still have so-called sound arguments. But what we would say is that we don't know that the premises are true, but on the assumption that they are then yes, we would have a sound argument given that those premises represent something like our best explanation or a, uh, something like our best understanding of the world. That for all practical purposes, in order to solve this problem, we're just going to regard these premises as conditionally or provisionally true, conjecturally true, something like that. And so therefore, the rules of logic should lead to co true conclusions. It's either we endorse something like that, or we just say there's no possibility of having a sound argument, that all we have are valid or invalid arguments, which might be fine as well. Now, I'm skipping a bit where Pinker again goes down an avenue of talking about Clinton versus Trump in 2016 and 2017 and uh, using the existence of their vice, respective vice presidential candidates as an example for a kind of valid argument. And I'll just pick it up where he says, quote, presenting a valid argument as if it were sound is a common fallacy. A politician promises, if we eliminate waste and fraud from the bureaucracy, we can lower taxes, increase benefits and balance the budget. I will eliminate waste and fraud. Therefore, vote for me and everything will be better. Fortunately, people can often spot a lack of soundness. And if we have a family of retorts to the sophist who draws plausible conclusions from dubious premises, that's a big if, is what you say. <laughs> if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Assume a spherical cow among scientists from a joke about a physicist recruited by a farmer to increase milk production. Yes, so um, my reflection on this is, yes, people readily spot a lack of soundness, okay, especially with that claim there, that's a big if. Okay, and skipping a little bit more, and Pinker ends this section by explaining, quote, logicians have developed more powerful logics that break the P's and Q's of propositional calculus into finer pieces. These include predicate calculus, which distinguishes subjects from predicates and all from some. Modal logic, which distinguishes statements that happen to be true in this world, like Paris is the capital of France, from those that are necessarily true in all worlds, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. 
temporal logic, which distinguishes past, present, and future, and deontic logic, which worries about permission, obligation, and duty. Okay, and the next section is called formal reconstruction, which is about how we could take an argument in theory, which is presented in English, and decompose it into its logical sequence to figure out whether or not it's valid or sound or whatever. I don't find this of much use because I don't think things ever really occur this way. I would imagine it's almost never been the case that in a court of law, for example, the argument is ever broken down into the basic symbols of logic and then proved. I find this exercise rather pointless. Now, Pinker goes on to spend a long time analysing a particular argument given by the Democrats' presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, and he reconstructs this in formal logic to some extent, along the way describing Yang as being admirably explicit with his platform. And so, I, I, yeah, I don't find this particularly informative with regards to understanding logic in any greater detail. So we're going to skip over that section and pick it up in the section about, which is titled, Critical Thinking and Informal Fallacies, which is all about those informal fallacies, informal fallacies being things like ad hominem, the straw man argument, any of the informal fallacies that, again, listed in Wikipedia if you look them up. It's not like affirming the consequent. So, you know, the, an argument like, if P then Q, Q therefore P, this is a formal fallacy, it's invalid. You know, an, an example of that is, if it has rained, then the road is wet, the road is wet, therefore it has rained. Well, that's a formally invalid argument. It's false because the road might be wet for other reasons beyond the rain. Someone might have hosed it down, for example. Now, I will read a little bit of this section, but I'll ignore most of it because it's, it's extremely long and it provides content I think you can get lots of places now. People collect these informal fallacies and as Pinker admits in this very chapter, it's basically what an educator running a course on critical thinking, bases their entire curriculum on. My personal favourite of these is called begging the question, which is circular argument or assuming what you're trying to prove. I've got an article on my website about it called begging the big ones, where I conclude that any explanation purporting to be ultimate in some sense, the ultimate explanation for the universe, whether it's God or whether it's the laws of physics or whatever, must beg the question. In other words, somehow, somewhere within the explanation for ultimate reality, it assumes what it said it was going to prove or demonstrate in the first place. So my nomination for most interesting of these informal fallacies is begging the question. What Pinker says in this section about this is, well, let me read, quote, he says, though formal fallacies such as denying the antecedent may be exposed when an argument is formally reconstructed, the more common errors in reasoning can't be pigeonholed in this way. Rather than crisply violating an argument form in the propositional calculus, arguers exploit some psychologically compelling but intellectually spurious lure. They are called informal fallacies. And fans of rationality have given them names, collected them by the dozens, and arranged them, together with the formal fallacies, into web pages, posters, flashcards, and the syllabuses of freshman courses on critical thinking. End quote. Yes, exactly. Educators, as he says there, are enamored by teaching these things as if it really helps people to become better critical thinkers. I think that all they are are labels for errors, okay? They're just a specific kind of error. And learning about these errors 
it can be good, but it doesn't make you especially immune to making them yourself or making other errors as well. They're all just kinds of errors. An error is the natural state of things. So trying to detect and then correct the errors, that's really what critical thinking is about. It's about criticizing what is wrong in some reasoning, in some premises, or anywhere else a knowledge claim happens to be made. So I'm skipping most of the this section and just at the end of the section, Pinker says, quote, So with all these formal and informal fallacies waiting to entrap us, Wikipedia lists more than 100, why can't we do away with this jibber-jabber once and for all and implement Leibniz's plan for logical discourse? Why can't we make our reasonings as tangible as those of the mathematicians so that we can find our errors at a glance? Why, in the 21st century, do we still have barroom arguments, Twitter wars, couples counselling, presidential debates? Why don't we say, let us calculate, and see who is right? We are not living in Leibniz's utopia, and as with other utopias, we never will. There are at least three reasons, end quote. Okay, so on to the next section. So here are the reasons, according to Pinker, that we can't just calculate our way to the truth. Okay, and the next section is titled Logical versus Empirical Truths. And he says, quote, One reason logic will never rule the world is the fundamental distinction between logical propositions and empirical ones, which Hume called relations of ideas and matters of fact, and philosophers call analytic and synthetic. To determine whether all bachelors are unmarried is true, you just need to know what the words mean, replacing bachelor with the phrase male and adult and not married and check the truth table. But to determine whether all swans are white is true, you have to get out of your armchair and look. If you visit New Zealand, you will discover the proposition is false because the swans there are black, end quote. So I've mentioned on this podcast before that this analytic synthetic distinction, which I think is due to Kant, is not as neat as what people would presume in the first place, okay? It's not just a matter of either things are defined as being true or things are empirically true by going out into the world and finding out whether or not they're true, contingently true, rather than being necessarily true. And one reason for this comes down to this a priori versus a posteriori division that can be made as well, which is a priori is before the fact, before knowing anything else about the world, by definition, and after the fact, going out into the world and investigating. Analytic and a priori seem to mean basically the same thing, except you can have synthetic a priori claims. And my favourite one of those is how long the metre is. So by definition, a priori, a metre is one metre long. But to know how long a particular metre is, you need to go out into the world and investigate it by finding the distance between scratches etched on a bar of metal in Paris, or these days, of course, using lasers and measure the speed of light and then see how far the light goes in a certain amount of time. And that's how long your metre is. So a metre is a curious kind of a thing, which fits both synthetic and analytic, or a posteriori and a priori. It's curious. So next, Pinker goes on to explain how obviously observation of the world is often needed. I'll skip this because it's a bit trivial (laughs) to know how many teeth a horse has. You've got to look into the mouth of a horse. (laughs) We're not learning anything new here. So all Pinker is saying here is we cannot 
calculate our way in the way that Leibniz thinks to truth because there are empirical truths. There are things we can only know by observing the world. And in the Popperian framework, of course, we say we have to observe in order to rule out a bunch of guesses we might have. So we have a whole bunch of conjectures we make about the world. Observation serves the purpose of refuting all of them, but the one, ideally, but the one that we rely on in order to solve our problems. Okay, so what's another reason that Pinker provides for Leibniz's dream of calculating our way to the truth not being reasonable? Well, what he says in the next section, which is titled Formal versus Ecological Rationality, he says, quote, A second reason Leibniz's dream will never come true lies in the nature of formal logic. It is formal, blinkered from seeing anything but the symbols and their arrangement as they are laid out in front of the reasoner. It is blind to the content of the proposition, what those symbols mean, and the context and background knowledge that might be mixed into the deliberation. Okay, so that's quite right. Um, Pinker goes on for a few pages to expound upon this notion. I still think it basically comes down to the fact that Logic is about the manipulation of symbols which are necessarily true. And yet, what we have when we talk science, history, anywhere else outside of logic and mathematics are not necessarily true statements. They're contingently true. Okay, They are things that we regard as part of our best explanation. So, as David describes it, approximately true. At best, they're approximately true. And so, saying that a system for arriving at necessary truth, given necessarily true premises, uh, on the assumption they're necessarily true, isn't really easily, neatly, portable into the realm of approximately true conjectures about the nature of physical reality. Okay, so that's these are two distinct areas. One can help to inform the other, but just copy-pasting one onto the other isn't a recipe for producing necessary truth, which is what Leibniz was after. Pinker ends the section by concluding, quote, they still fall short of life in all its plenitude. Leibniz's logical utopia, which requires self-inflicted amnesia for background knowledge, not only runs against the grain of human cognition, but is ill-suited for a world in which not every relevant fact can be laid out as a premise, end quote. Quite right. Exactly. Perfect. In that section, Pink has basically just said that logic is divorced from the meaning of the meanings of the claims it represents. Hence, it's limited, which I couldn't agree more with. And next, he goes on to a section which he titles Classical versus Family Resemblance Categories. This is about Wittgenstein. And so, well, let me just read a little quote. He says, A third reason that rationality will never be reduced to logic is that the concepts that people care about differ in a crucial way from the predicates of classical logic. Take the predicate even number, which can be defined by the biconditional. If an integer can be divided by two without remainder, it is even and vice versa. The biconditional is true, as is the proposition eight can be divided by two without remainder. And from these premises, we can deduce the true conclusion eight is even. Likewise with if a person is female and the mother of a parent, she is a grandmother, and vice versa. And if a person is male and adult and not married, he is a bachelor, and vice versa. We might suppose that with enough effort, every human concept can be defined in this way by laying out necessary conditions for it to be true, the first if-then in the biconditional, and sufficient conditions for it to be true, the vice versa converse. 
The reverie was famously punctuated by the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, 1889-1951. Just try, he said, to find the necessary and sufficient conditions for any of our everyday concepts. What is the common denominator across all the pastimes we call games? Physical activity? Not with board games. Gaiety? Not in chess. Competitors? Not solitaire. Winning and losing? Not a ring around the rosy or a child throwing a ball. End quote. So this is... Um, this is often made, people often make a big deal about this Wittgenstein thing and this this family resemblance thing that, that, you know, there's not a simple way of defining what a game is because there's lots of different things that fit under that umbrella term, game, and they don't seem to have one single thing in common. Uh, I've always shrugged my shoulders at this. It's like, oh, well, big deal. We still know. I think in the Papirian worldview, or what um, David Deutsch might say, is just to argue, well, there's no perfectly unambiguous language. It's just a special case of no theory is final. Language is for communicating with one another, and so it's going to be error-prone, both in its transmission and its reception. Even if there was a perfect definition, the sender and receiver has to interpret it. Different people may interpret the same thing differently. So, again, it's only an issue for people like Wittgenstein or Leibniz and others if they think that the whole purpose of knowledge is about proving something as true. If you give up that, if you give up this whole thing that knowledge is about justifying as true, your claims, and instead you embrace conjectural knowledge, it's just not an issue. This idea of what a game is, well, you can just conjecture and then debate and refute what you think a game happens to be. No big deal. Pinker goes on to say, quote, It's not that all concepts are fuzzy family resemblance categories. People are perfectly capable of putting things in little boxes. Everyone understands that a number is either even or odd with no in-betweens. Okay, I'm just going to take exception with that. I wouldn't be so fast with it. Okay, that seems to me what Pink has done right there in saying everyone understands that a number can be even or odd with no in-betweens is itself a logical fallacy. This whole idea of everyone understands. Whatever anyone says that something like that, everyone understands, or no one would disagree, something like that. That's a hasty generalization. I have actually taught young people exactly that concept for the first time more than once. And young people, upon learning about the difference between even and odd numbers, will automatically ask you about zero or negative numbers. Even then, this sharpness or non-fuzziness of what an even number or what an odd number is doesn't mean it's immediately obvious, okay? They're not the same thing. Being non-fuzzy is not obvious. The proof of Fermat's last theorem by Andrew Wiles is 100 pages long or something, and this doesn't mean it's clear or obvious, even if it's not fuzzy. (laughs) And even for simple cases like even versus odd, that takes quite a lot of background knowledge about what numbers are, what integers are, how division works, what remainders are, and so on and so forth. Again, consider someone who's never learnt any of this before. So I think um, Professor Pinker needs to be a little bit more careful with claims like that. The claim that Everyone understands that a number is either even or odd. Well, only if you're excluding that vast number of people who've never learnt what even and odd are. Okay? So, and, and, and when you do, it's not that trivial. You know, it's not like you, it becomes immediately obvious to you okay, upon first learning this. Most people will have forgotten what it was like to learn something like that. Okay, again, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping much of the, this section, this part of this chapter. Uh, Pink goes through when he received an email from the Democratic Party, which was about 
apparently the Republicans classifying pizza as a vegetable or some, as a vegetable or something like that for the purpose of school lunches. What I was just thinking is, is it common in the United States to get emails from political parties? Uh, what is the reason for saying that I received the following email from the Democratic Party in a book like this? Is it a virtue signal to an in-group or something like that? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever the case, on to the next section, which is titled Logical Computation versus Pattern Association. He asks, if many of our judgments are too squishy to be captured in logic, how do we think at all? And he goes on to answer a little later. One answer may be found in the family of cognitive models called pattern associations, perceptrons, connectionist nets, parallel distributed processing models, artificial neural networks, and deep learning systems. The key idea is that rather than manipulating strings of symbols with rules, an intelligence system can aggregate tens, thousands, or millions of graded signals, each capturing the degree to which a property is present. End quote. So my issue here is that for Pinker, it seems to be the case that the answer to how learning happens or thinking happens in human beings, intelligent systems like ourselves, is to be found in the operation of existing computer systems like neural nets that are just called intelligent systems. So he thinks the, that what we call artificial intelligence or neural nets or whatever, that they are actually good models for what is truly going on with the software of the human mind. It's a little curious because, well, he's going to go on to say that in the case of neural nets in particular, that no one knows how they reach their conclusions. So what's being claimed here is that an unexplained thing, namely how a neural net reaches its conclusions, is an explanation for how the human mind is working. So an unexplained thing, the neural net, explains another unexplained thing, the human mind. And in fact, there is no explanation here. It's just that they're both unexplained, therefore one explains the other. Well, if, that's, if that logical fallacy doesn't have a name, it should have one. <laughs> and he, he reaches this conclusion, by the way, by an example of how the word vegetable, most of us know what a vegetable is, and it's very difficult to train a neural network to come up with what a vegetable is, to come up with the rules for what a vegetable is. Let me just read a small part about uh, Pinker's explanation of how neural nets work and how they apply weights to different claims. And, well, he says, quote, who, you may ask, programmed in the all-important connection weights? The answer is no one. They are learned from experience. The network is trained by presenting it with many examples of different foods together with the correct category provided by a teacher. End quote. For me, what's useful to note here, given the explanation that Pink is providing, is that no knowledge is actually being created by the neural net. So the example being used here is how you might train a neural net to figure out what a vegetable is, with no one explicitly giving it an algorithm for what a vegetable is. But they are training it. So it's not that the neural net itself is creating knowledge. That is not what's going on. It's the programmer or the trainer who already knows what a vegetable is, so they're programming it by proxy. We might say the network is trained, but it's not learning. It's not creating knowledge that did not originate in the mind of the human using the system or training the system. 
And so this is a stark difference between what a human being is doing in conjecturing explanations, conjecturing knowledge, and what something like a neural net, a dumb computer is doing. No matter how sophisticated this system happens to be, it's not conjecturing explanations, it's not conjecturing knowledge, it's relying upon the knowledge that is already in the minds of actually intelligent human beings in order to arrive at the conclusions that it does. He goes on to say, quote, The challenge in getting these networks to work is how to train them. The problem is with the connections from the input layer to the hidden layer. Since the units are hidden from the environment, their guesses cannot be matched against correct values supplied by the teacher. End quote. So for me, this seems to suggest this cannot explain how to produce knowledge no one yet knows, which is what people are doing routinely outside of, let's say, a classroom. Just to find what is the best way for you to get to work is something no one knows until you yourself create that knowledge. There is no one to ask. And so this is not the kind of thing, although we do it routinely, that any neural net is actually doing. The neural net is learning stuff that people already know, okay, because they're the thing that is training it, okay, that there's already knowledge out there in the world, and that is being used by proxy to inform the operation of the neural net. He goes on to say, quote, these networks are powering the great AI awakening we are living through, which is giving us the first serviceable products for speech and image recognition, question answering, translation, and other human-like feats. Okay, End quote. Uh, he says they're human-like. Again, the standard for that is creating human knowledge, not imitating sounds or whatnot. Jaron Lanier has made some excellent, incisive remarks about this, this whole idea of translation as apparently appearing, like if you go to Google Translate, it will translate um, from whatever language you like into English or from any language into any other language. And it looks as if the computer is kind of doing something intelligent, but it's not. It's disguising the fact that it is relying upon gathering up actual translations that have been done by real creative humans elsewhere at some other time. And all the computer is doing is aggregating that knowledge that already exists. It's not creating any new knowledge. It's just summarizing what's already there. And so it's not human-like. It's not a human-like feat at all. The human-like feat that was done was by actual humans elsewhere in creating the knowledge of translation. Okay, And Jérôme Lanier makes a, a huge deal about this because he says that these translators that are doing the work of actual translation between French and Spanish or Mandarin and Cantonese or Cantonese and English, whatever, that all of those translations are gathered up by Google and then being used to supposedly automate the process of translation. But of course, any real translator will tell you it's always very, very crude. And these translators that have done the real work are rarely paid for the work they're done by Google. It's just disguise, Google is disguising the fact, these tra automatic translators are disguising the fact that behind the computation that they put out, the, the, the translation they do for you, is actually a, an army of real-life human translators that have already done all the work before. So it's not human-like. I would, I would reject that. He goes on to say, quote, Deep learning networks often outperform good old-fashioned artificial intelligence, which executes logic-like deductions on hand-coded propositions and rules. The contrast in the way they work is stark. Unlike logical inference, the inner workings of a neural net are inscrutable. End quote. I just think all that's not true. 
It confuses understanding with predicting or giving a step-by-step recipe for how all of it happened. So that, that the fact they call it deep learning doesn't really mean deep learning's going on. The fact they call it artificial intelligence doesn't mean it's actual intelligence. The fact they call it a neural net doesn't mean it's like neurons. Uh, these are marketing terms in computation uh, by programmers who have, yes, sophisticated, interesting systems. These are well worthwhile advances, but don't be misled by the terms that they're using, by this terminology, which is disguising what's really going on. It is still the hardware of logic gates going on. That's what's happening. It's not conjecture and refutation. It's not genuine human-level creativity. And when he says there that the operations of a neural net are inscrutable, that, that disguises something, okay? It's like saying that how water was able to boil in some pot is inscrutable. And the reason? Because no one can outline what each and every molecule of H2O in the pot actually did. Now, it's true to say that when water boils, it is impossible for anyone to give an account of every single particle of every single molecule of H2O in that pot of water. That is intractable. It's too difficult, it's too complicated, and so therefore we have these higher level emergent explanations. What we say is, we understand what must have happened, even if, okay, we, what must have happened to each of those water molecules is eventually they, get, they gain effectively escape velocity. They go from being in the water phase to being in the gaseous phase. We understand we have an explanation of what's going on. And in the same way, these neural networks might be inscrutable in the way that we can't explain what every single little step is that lead to the ultimate outcome, the ultimate output of this particular system. But we can still say how the system is doing what it's doing by weighting particular connections. That's what's going on. There's a difference between intractable, okay, uh, not being able to follow every single fine-grained detail, and nonetheless comprehensible, okay, understandable, something for which we have a good emergent explanation. Like Pinker says in the very next sentence, most of the millions of hidden units don't stand for any coherent concept that we can make sense of, and the computer scientists who train them can't explain how they arrive at any particular answer. End quote. That might be right. But again, that's like a physicist saying, well, they can't account for why any one particular H2O molecule turns into gas while another didn't at the boiling point. Why it is that some have the right velocity to escape the rest of the liquid and others remain in the liquid phase. It's unimportant. Those details are unimportant for understanding the overall process of boiling or vaporization. Okay? We understand this in terms of the science. So too for something like this, op the operation of a neural net. But to be fair, Pinker then goes on to equivocate on this. He says, quote, Is the human brain a big, deep learning network? Certainly not, for many reasons, but the similarities are illuminating. The brain has around 100 billion neurons connected by 100 trillion synapses. And by the time we are 18, we have been absorbing examples from our environments for more than 300 million waking seconds. So we are prepared to do a lot of pattern matching and associating just like these networks. The networks are tailor-made for the fuzzy family resemblance categories that make up so much of our conceptual repertoire. Neural networks thus provide clues about the portion of human cognition that is rational but not technically speaking logical they demystify the inarticulate yet sometimes uncanny mental power we call intuition instinct inklings gut feelings and the sixth sense end quote so yes there's all that which i'd call guessing 
and in some cases, guessing given some explicit knowledge. But the main point is, again, those systems, those other systems can't create knowledge. And so that's why the human brain is different to these other systems. These other systems, whether you call them artificial intelligence, neural networks, deep learning networks, whatever, they're not generating new explanations. They're not conjecturing knowledge. And finally, we're near the end. I'm skipping ever more of the, this last section here. And I'll just pick it up towards the end where Pinker says, quote, Human rationality is a hybrid system. The brain contains pattern associations that soak up family resemblances and aggregate large numbers of statistical clues, but it also contains a logical symbol manipulator that can assemble concepts into propositions and draw out their implications. Call it system two or recursive cognition or rule-based reasoning. Formal logic is a tool that can purify and extend this mode of thinking, freeing it from the bugs that come with being a social and emotional animal. Because our propositional reasoning frees us from similarity and stereotypes, it enables the highest achievements of human rationality such as science, morality and law. Though porpoises fit into the family resemblance among fishes, the rules that define membership in Linnaean classes, like if an animal suckles its young, then it is a mammal, tell us they are not in fact members. Through chains of categorical reasoning like this, we can be convinced that humans are apes. The sun is a star, and solid objects are mostly empty space. In the social sphere, our pattern finders easily see the ways in which people differ. Some individuals are richer, smarter, stronger, swifter, better looking, and more like us than others. But when we embrace the proposition that all humans are created equal, if X is a human, then X has rights, we can sequester these impressions from our legal and moral decision-making and treat all people equally. End quote. End of the chapter here of rationality, logic and critical thinking. And I might just say at the end there, I might amend what Pinker has said there. When we embrace the proposition that all humans are created equal, when we embrace the proposition that all humans are universal explainers, then we understand the fundamental thing that unites all human minds, this creative capacity that enables them to have a deep connection with the rest of reality because we are able to form a model, a representation of any other part of physical reality uniquely. We are the ones able to do this in the universe, so far as we know. None of the systems, none of these fancy computer systems that we've been able to devise can do that. We can do it. And all people that exist throughout the universe, if there is indeed alien life out there, or if there is some future artificial general intelligence that we give birth to, will be able to do this as well. Explain the universe in which it finds itself. And that is the sense in which we are all equal. And the way this explanation generating happens, error detection and correction of our conjectures about reality, none of which are ultimately true, and which therefore cannot be arrived at purely by formal logic, which is what I would say is in some sense missing from this chapter about logic and critical thinking. Okay, it should have focused somewhat more on this idea of error detection and correction. Really, that's what critical thinking should be regarded as. Being able to find criticisms of, okay, being critical of our claims about reality. That's what criti critical thinking is about. And the reason that you apply criticism at all in the first place is to try and identify where the errors are. And once you've identified where the errors are, then you can correct the errors 
improve, make progress, come up with yet better explanations, more universal explanations, explanations which can have a broader repertoire of solutions to a larger number of problems which are revealed by deeper explanations. Okay, that is, this is the grand, optimistic, Popperian, Deutsch worldview. Okay, nevertheless, we have in this chapter a good summary, as I say, of the academic university-style take on what logic and critical thinking is. But until next time, bye-bye.